Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, the show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Happy Friday. You made it through the end of the week. And hopefully your phone is working. Hopefully your phone is working. I've heard the bizarrest theories about what's been happening. Yeah. Theory number one, solar flares. Doesn't seem like that's actually what caused the disruption. Okay. Theory two, a concerted attack. And by the time this podcast comes out, perhaps we'll find out one way or the other what actually took place. But the concerted attack from a foreign nation, nation of sorts. Maybe they might have a certain color that they're associated with. I don't want them to cut off our podcast, so I'm not going to say it, but it's an interesting theory. It is. It is. It is the time. It is, you know, there's wars and rumors of wars and all sorts of weird stuff happening. Right. I mean, it, yeah, it's a pretty, I mean, if if your phone was the one disrupted, I guess this was a big deal. I I would say this would have, if the, if the second one is true, I'd say that this is probably a soft probe to see, okay, how vulnerable are their systems really? I, I think. A concerted attack, I think, would be far more devastating than, you know, and, and granted, like 70,000 people without cell service, I, I get, that's a big deal. Was but, it only 70,000? I thought it was, a, it was a national outage in different hotspots of the country. I, those are the numbers that I was hearing. Now, that may just be the DFW Metroplex, but those right. are the numbers I was hearing as I was listening on the, the radio to what was going on. Well, I, I think it's, so it's widespread to national. Yeah, I don't know the numbers yet. And I don't think they've even said what and why. Yeah. They're just, mum's the word. Mom, not mom, mom, mom. I, I don't, I actually don't know the difference. So I'm going to say we had to buy mums back in high school for homecoming. What's up here? It's a big deal. You had to buy a mom. Your, your daughters will have a mom for I homecoming. Un, un, I don't even know what you're saying okay, right now. So a mom so use is English is it's they it's so there's a flower that's a mum. this is like a fake thing oh chrysanthemum yeah but it has like ribbons and it has like charms and different things on it it has the name of like the her date to homecoming on it and if he played sports then his football number or soccer number or something like that on there and at the homecoming football game all the the girls the tradition out here is they wear these mums, these gigantic like six seven inch wide diameter things on their their uh their clothes when they go out to to the homecoming dance not the dance the uh, the homecoming football game i don't know how i feel about this it's like a simple status out here it's so the bigger it is a simple status it's a symbol. symbol of your status that's I, I understood what you meant yeah and if i so if i get a really big one i'm, Dude, I'm like big money and listen some of these dallas moms go all out <laughs> in building these moms and it is it's a thing i'm just imagining this poor 16 year old girl who's got a mom bigger than she is for real though for real like <laughs> can't even see her because yeah. her mom is so massive yeah i don't even think that girls like it but it is like <laughs> hey i got a date and here he is and, and this is his number and he's on the football field. and i've got a massive mom you can't yeah. even see me because i'm happen, dancing man. behind the mom it was there when i was going to high school it's still there wow. today it's i it's don't a thing. know mom man southern culture is something yeah it is a real thing cultural differences i mean we're not that far away from california i mean it's not super far right but the cultural difference is 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 there yeah it's so it's so interesting it is. It's like people watching. You go yeah. to the, you ever go to the the beach or someplace where there's a lot of people and just sit down and watch people? Yep. Interesting. People yep. do the strangest things. They really do. They do. Yeah. Speaking of culture, uh, we talked a little bit yesterday, or I th- maybe it was two days ago, about uh, ago. The, the use of our words and yeah. profanity specifically, and how largely it's culturally defined. What we think is taboo or off bounds or vulgar or profane. And so someone gave us a question that maybe you can answer. Okay. Okay. They said that they heard the podcast that morning. Yep. 
And obviously they're not in favor of using curse words, but what about- It's a good caveat. Yeah, <laughs> they're not in favor. But what about what Paul said in Philippians, in Philippians 3, 8, where he talks about everything being rubbish, that's scubalon. the English word, uh, and the word behind that being scubalon. And people have said, uh, lots of people have said that that word actually is an, another way of using the S word. The right. four letter S word in our current culture. Ooh. Is that true? And how, <laughs> yes, that one, but not a, it doesn't start with an S. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So uh, here's the thing. Uh, this is this is a single use term in the, the Greek language. It's called a hapax legomena in uh, in Greek study, which means it only occurs one time in the entirety of the New Testament. Sometimes we can take a word that has multiple use usages in the scriptures and be able to compare and contrast uh, the, the uses of it in different contexts. So a word can have a vast range of meaning. You take the English word trunk. It can refer to the back of your car. It can refer to the chest that's sitting at the foot of your bed. It can refer to the nose of an elephant. It can refer to the thing that's on a tree. That mm -hmm. one word can have that range of meanings. Well, it's the same thing when we think about Greek words, Hebrew words, Aramaic words as well. And when there's multiple uses in scripture, we can take those multiple uses and begin to narrow down the, the field of meaning on those words. In a case of the hapax legomena, and there's more than just this one, this one just happens to be the one at, at hand, uh, we don't have all those other uses to be able to look at and examine. So when we do look outside of scripture, we do find that the term was used in literature, um, in other writings, and it did carry the notion of that which is repulsive or revolting, and specifically to do with the 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 subject of dung excrement. And, yeah, excrement. In fact, the uh, the New English translation will translate it not rubbish, but it's dung. And uh, the the argument that people want to make is this was a, a profane word that Paul was using, not just a word that had to do with the, that which was revolting, but actually a profane word that he's he's cursing here. And so, therefore, if, if Paul did for shock it here, value. right for shock value, uh, then it's okay or appropriate for the Christian to do so from time to time. Well, uh, number one, we have to we have to, to consider the, the the context, the the canonical context. So we talked about Ephesians four twenty nine last time we brought this up. Right. Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the building up of other people. Right. Um, this would certainly qualify if, if this was profane as something that is unwholesome. Uh, this would be something that is, is contradicting and going against Ephesians 4.29. So the, the question we have to ask ourselves, is it possible for this word to be something that communicates the shock of the revolting and the repulsiveness and communicates the contrast between knowing Christ and self-righteousness, which is really what's in view here, and, and uses a word that is repulsive and would cause your, your skin to crawl when you think about it to set up that contrast without it being profane. And mm. I think that's when we consider the, the, the range of meaning that this word doesn't necessarily imply profanity. In fact, if you look, Dan Wallace is one of the leading Greek commentators and leading Greek scholars in the world today. And he said of this world of this word in, a, in an article on Bible.org, he said, look, at the end of the day, we can't really be sure. It's probably somewhere between uh, the, the C word that rhymes with snap and the, the S word. And it's somewhere in between there. But he said, but there's also situations where it does mean gleanings or leftover table scraps. And it, and it could be that as well. So I think when we consider the canonical context of scripture, we have to come down on the fact that Paul was not being profane here. Because that would contradict and go against clear teaching elsewhere, even from the Apostle Paul himself. But rather what he was trying to do is make a point, and he was doing so by using a word that was revolting, but not profane. One quick point I would make is simply this. Every English translation, and I'm looking through all of my Bibles here as we've been talking, every English translation 
does not use the bad word. In fact, let me just quickly read to you the, the top, I guess I have the top 10 here in front of me that I've been using. Rubbish, dung, garbage, rubbish, rubbish, filth, dung, dung, rubbish, garbage, rubbish, refuse. So you have different use cases of, of, uh, of, the, of the words here, but all of them are still not on the realm of the profane and the vulgar. They still communicate the strength of the word, without devolving into using words that are unfit for a Christian. And so to, to emphasize your point, Pastor PJ, I, I, I would heartily agree. Paul is certainly not cursing here. He's not using potty language uh, in the sense that we understand it today. Obviously it is potty language because that's what the technical word means, but he's using it in a very purposeful and not careless way as Jesus condemns. It's a very careful and precise usage to talk about our works outside of Christ. Right. And, and this also goes back to what we talked about a couple of days ago, that when we use these fill-in words, these, these stand-in words, it's, it's, again, the motivation. What's your heart motivation behind this? And, and that's, that's the problem. The, the heart motivation can be just as sinful saying C-R-A-P as it is saying the, the profane you know, curse word that w- is used and, and thrown around. So Paul's heart was definitely not there at this point, and he was trying to make a point that his that, that Christ is supremely valuable. And I would find it unlikely of the Apostle Paul that he'd be making a point of, uh, about the worth of Christ by sinning in the process. Fair enough. All right, well, let's jump into Numbers. Brand new book today. New book. We get to start in chapters one and two. The, uh, the title for Numbers comes from the censuses, the sensei, sensei. that are taken in the book. Sensei. Um, censuses. Anyways, yeah. Uh, from the 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 numbering, I can't say the word anymore. Uh, the numbering that are, are done in the book, where the the tribes are counted, the people are counted, and right. um, the uh, the book draws its name from that. The Hebrew title is "In the Wilderness." I like that one better. Yeah, yeah. It, it conveys a little bit more of the the full scope of the book rather than. A couple of instances. Can we do just both? Numbers in the Wilderness. In the Wilderness. Subtitle. In the Wilderness. Yeah. And uh, and just last, it was written by Moses as the uh, the story of a generation who failed to trust the Lord and forfeited their opportunity to inherit the promised land. And so Numbers is is the book where um, God looks at the people and says, that's it. You're, this generation is not going into the promised forfeited. land. Yeah. Yeah. So how does it fit within the Pentateuch? We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're going to go into Deuteronomy after this. Is there anything special about this book that we need to pay attention to? I've read that this could possibly be the, the last book that Moses penned, that Moses wrote in oh. the Pentateuch, oh, even though it's not the fifth book of the Pentateuch. Wow. Um, it does take us from Sinai to the 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 shores of the Jordan. It takes mm. us right up to the, the edge Bank. of the Promised Land. Yeah. And, uh, and Moab. it's significant because it, it continues to describe and, and help us understand the formation of God's people from the time of Exodus until the time that they were prepared to or getting ready to enter into the, uh, the promised land. And how utterly bad they did. Yes. I mean, they, they, some, we get to some really important chapters in this book about yeah. what they did wrong and how merciful God was to, to preserve them, to save them, and some really cool dynamics between God and Moses and the people. I mean, Moses interceding on their behalf. There's just so many cool dynamics that I can't wait for us to explore as we uh, unpack this book. But it's within the five books that we call the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and this is simply the fourth volume, uh, and, and, and it has a lot of impact for how we understand ourselves, how we understand rebellion, and how God sees it, the responses that he gives, how he understands leadership. We see some of that here again. So many good things ahead. Yep. 
Yeah, numbers one through two then, the book opens up with this census. It's the second year after they had left. So we're probably 1444, 1443 BC in that range there, that date range. In fact, if you go to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, there the note is that it's the 20th day of the same month that we read about here in Numbers chapter one. So chapters one through 10 take place in about 19 days, uh, which is kind of crazy because you you might think, well, this is a prolonged period of time, but it's it's just under three weeks that we read about in chapters one all the way down through, uh, through chapter 10. This census is taken for the purpose of preparing for battle. Because again, God at this point is still marching his people towards the promised land. And he knows to take possession of the promised land, there is going to need to be battle. So the first census that we come across here is numbering the uh, the, the men eligible to uh, go to war. And that's what we read about here. And as we get into this, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 19, Moses gathers the tribes to be, rep- to be ready for this count. And then the count takes place in 20 through 46. Now, here's what we need to get into. And we talked about this when we talked about the Exodus itself. But now we need to, to revisit this because it's it's here in front of us again. And that is the, the numbers of numbers. What do we do with the count? The totals of uh, military men come out to 603,550 fighting men or men of fighting age. Mm-hmm. That would essentially support a number, uh, an overall number of Israelite population at this point of around 2 million or just over 2 million. And so... The, the question, like we talked about in, in them leaving Egypt and, and going into the wilderness, are those numbers accurate? And, and, and before you throw the flag and say, well, how can you doubt the Bible? This is what the word of God says. The, the word for thousand, okay, the word for thousand in the Hebrew can also have with just a, a slight consonant variation there, which sometimes would take place through the transmission of the text, can mean group or family instead of thousand. So... That would change the meaning because instead of 500,000 people in a group or 5,000 people in a group, there would be five families in that group and some number of hundreds of people in the group instead, which would give you a much smaller number when all the numbers are computed. So, uh, Pastor Rod, talk to us. Why? What are some of the, the, the thoughts that are valid arguments about rethinking the number 2 million? And then maybe for you, where do you land at the end of it after you've kind of considered the, the options? That's a, that's a really good question. And let me just lay out the, the the rough and dirty options, okay? Just really quickly for you guys listening. Number one, take the figures at face value. That's the, that's the one that you're gonna be most predisposed to because that's what it says right there. Number two, the figures should be taken at face value, but they correspond to the population of Israel at a later date, maybe, maybe in the time of David, perhaps. Number three, the numbers were changed, uh, not intentionally, but a scribal error, perhaps. And that's what we were just talking about a moment ago. Or number four, the numbers are symbolic, that they have some meaning outside of the numbers themselves. They're meant to convey the strength of God in developing this people group um, as they are. Okay. Why would we even think twice about doubting what is there? Well, there's there's several reasons why it's it's not ungodly or unfaithful to say, okay, is is that the right way to think about this? And the first thing is that God calls his people small in number. They are insignificant. They're not a large people group. In fact, one of the reasons why he doesn't lead them to the promised land is because they're not large enough to inhabit it yet. They're not able to substantially fill the land at the rate that it grows, at the rate of their disposing other people groups. So he says, I can't take you in there yet because you're not large enough. So we're going to do it part by part, people by people, which doesn't make sense if they're really, so if there's 600,000 fighting men, you're looking at about two to at most 3 million people total, men, women, and children. So that's a, that's a big number. 
Secondly, you have some of the issues in the desert. Prior to God providing manna and water, the Israelites had to exist off of something. What were they eating at that point? And you could say, well, they, they, they plundered the Egyptians, so they brought in cattle. You have to talk about a lot of cattle, a lot of animals to support the people of Israel. From the time that they left Israel to the time that God begins to provide for them in the wilderness, that's, just, that's, that's a challenge. Not impossible, but it's a challenge. So all that to say, Oh, one other thing too, population guesses at the time, estimations rather is a, is a better word. Population estimates at the time suggest that people groups were much smaller than this. In other words, Israel, if they are two to 3 million, they would stand out as being exceptionally big compared to other people groups, which again, would really set them up to do well against others. And in which case, if they are that big, then when they conquer another people group, it's really not that impressive because they have plenty of people. You have lots of fighting men. And maybe you could say, well, they're slaves and then that train. There's lots of things to say about this. Okay, all that said, all that context, despite the issues, Pastor PJ, I'm going to take it at face value. I'm going to say, I think two to three million, it's, it is what it is. Uh, of all the potential all the potential approaches, I think this one has the least amount of issues. And, here, and here's, my, here's my push. I, I want to know the one that God did. I have no problem accepting God doing the miraculous, and I don't suspect you do either. The question is, what miracles is God doing? How are we supposed to understand this? And I think I'm just going to take it as it's written here and just say, okay, this was, and when God talks about their smallness, he's talking about their insignificance. They're not a brute fighting force. They're not, they're not highly trained. God is taking them from infancy in, in Egypt, so to speak, and he's growing them up into a people, growing them up into a people to be his own, his own nation. And they're going to become all that he wants them to be. When it comes to taking over the land of Canaan, they're small and insignificant, unprepared, unfit, but he's going to use them anyway. That's my thoughts. Those are my two cents. What do you think, PPJ? Yeah, I, I mean, amen. I, I would probably agree with you at the end of the day. I think the face value is probably the, the safest place to be here um, of, of any of the, the positions that are there. And yeah, be, when he says you were once small, again, to your point, you weren't like Egypt. One author said, you know, if there were really two million of them in, in Egypt, they could have risen up and, and conquered the Egyptians. Well, they're, they're an infant nation. They didn't have any training in warfare. They didn't, I mean, right. the Egyptians aren't sitting there training them how to be a militaristic nation. That's for sure. Right. So that, that argument doesn't really hold water. And so I, I, and the, the fear, remember when, when they, they do eventually cross the, the Jordan river and go in. Uh, one of the things is that the people in uh, Jericho feared the Israelites. That in fact, that's what, uh, what Rahab says It's Rahab, right? Yep. At that point. Thank yep. you. Um, when she says to the spies, we've heard reports of you and we're afraid of you. Mm -hmm. If they truly were a small, insignificant number of people, then they're not going to be afraid of them. So you could even make the argument that, that there's some evidence perhaps in, yep. in favor of the large number. So yeah, I think the face value is the safest place to be. I think God was able to provide these things for them, do the miraculous. I'm, I'm with you in that. Yeah. It just seems like in the whole, uh, from the Exodus all the way until they reach the promised land, the whole thing is really meant to show, look, God has done something amazing here. Yep. So with that as my main rubric in determining this, I think it just makes sense to say, I'm going to just take the numbers as they are yeah. and deal with the problems as they arise. I would agree. I would agree. Chapter two, then we get the outline of the camp. We get the outline of the camp and-, and uh, Shaped like a cross. It sort of. <laughs> it's, it's Jesus in Numbers chapter two. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. But it, it, it is cross-shaped. Like, it is, it is cross-shaped. Like yeah. a T, I guess. Lowercase yeah. T. So you had these uh, these groups that were camped around the tabernacle. The, the tent of meeting was in the middle of this 
really kind of rectangular arrangement uh, more than it was circular because they were camped on each side of the rectangular uh, shape of the tent there. If you have a good uh, study Bible or a commentary, I know, for example, the Tyndale, Tyndale Old Testament commentary on numbers, they provide a diagram here that kind of shows you where all of the different camps were. Uh, the Levites were there in three uh, sections there. Then you had the priests on one side. And by the way, that's an important distinction, and, and we'll get into this a little bit more as we continue in numbers, but the priests and Levites are not the same here. The, the, the priests were a subset of Levites that were descendants from Aaron specifically. So it's the Aaronic priesthood within the Levitical priesthood. So the, the priests were not taken from the Kohathites or the sons of Merari or the, the Gershonites. They were separate. Uh, they had duties that had to do with the tabernacle. And so they were Levitical in that sense, but they were separate in that they weren't eligible for the priesthood. Only des- the descendants at this point of Aaron were eligible for the priesthood. Amen. And so you had, uh, yeah, so you had this all, all camped around. This was not unique, by the way. Uh, ancient armies would do this, but they would place their king at the center of their camps. And so even here, God is communicating something to his people and to any of the nations that should happen to come upon them as they're camped, that, that he is their king, that that the, the royal pl- tent, so to speak, is the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle that's there in the middle. And it was also communicating to the people as they set out and the tabernacle would go with them, the tabernacle would go in their midst. And so God was traveling with them in their midst as he was going with the people of Israel. So it's a, a comfort to them, a reminder of God dwelling with them. Remember that promise that he made, I will be with you as your God and you will be with me as my people. Now, that, that ultimately has its realization in Revelation 21. We're seeing it even symbolized, visualized here as God is going with his people in the tabernacle. Yeah, so literally, even as they camped, Jesus, or God, is at the center. As they marched, God is again at the center because the tent of meeting is going between everybody. Mm -hmm. So everything in Israel's life is meant to centralize their perspective, their focus, their identity, really, on who God is and therefore who they are. Really cool uh, symbology here. It is, it is. Well, keep reading your Bibles and uh, track with us in Numbers as we are into a new book, brand new book, Numbers 3 and 4 tomorrow, and we will be with you then. See you then. Bye. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast.